G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan, and good to be back with you again after an unscheduled break. Absolutely, yeah. We, we've got you back in the uh, in the big wild world after a period of isolation. You are uh, you had the spicy cough, Dad. Yes, there's a little bit of a dry cough. I did have COVID, and fortunately, a very mild case of it. It was only mainly affecting me for about three or four days. Of course, seven days in ISO. I took a couple of family members into ISO with me, sadly enough. But uh, fortunately, I think those three jabs helped, and so basically came through it well. And I'm glad that I didn't pass it on. Yeah, well, obviously, you know, it is it is good that you're doing well, but I must admit, I do feel a little bit uh, a little bit sorry for mum, one of my sisters, dad, who uh, who had to go in with you. Not that that you know spending time with you is is that bad, but I just think yeah, the whole period of isolation would have been tough if you didn't actually have COVID yourself, almost waiting to get it. So yes, I did feel a bit of the culprit. I must admit. <laughs> oh, I don't think anyone's uh, placing too much blame on you at this stage, dad, but. It's good to have you out anyway, and and good to have you out for today's podcast, which is an absolutely fascinating topic. We've called today's episode, Fortifying Our Focus in the Age of Distraction. So we're going to be talking about focus and and our attention today, Dad. So yeah, do you want to give us a little bit of a, a preamble? What are we going to be talking about? Yes, well, I must admit my focus or my concentration wasn't quite so good last week with COVID, but I had enough of it to read a fascinating book called Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. And he described very well how we have so much competing for our attention these days, and particularly with social media that we'll talk about later on. But I thought it was particularly relevant after the last couple of topics that we did on flow and creativity. Because as we would have described, to experience that state of flow, where you're really engaged and immersed in what you're doing, that takes sustained attention it takes that attentional focus over a period of time and the same thing with creativity now the thing is it's harder to experience flow and harder to make the most of our creativity if we're having our focus disrupted our attention disrupted in different ways and as you described in this age of distraction there are extra things distracting us these days over and above what we had to deal with before well, it's so true, Dad, and, you know, it's something I, like, I find it fascinating working with podcasts and, you know, it's a big thing with podcasts in some ways is obviously you're competing for attention with a whole range of other things, but even getting someone to invest the time in a podcast isn't necessarily the most straightforward thing in terms of, you know, potentially they're an hour plus long and you're competing against, you know, 30 second to one minute TikTok videos. As you say, there is so much competing for our attention at the moment and and potentially more than than has ever been competing for our attention before. I read an article during the week from the BBC which said, in the course of a day, the average person in a Western city is said to be exposed to as much data as someone in the 15th century would encounter in their entire life. So I think it's, uh, you know, 100,000 words of of processed data. couldn't tell you how they got that figure, but uh, apparently it, it is around 34 gigabytes of information. But at the same time, I think what that shows is, you know, social media is a huge part of that. And we will talk about that a little bit more, Dad. But I think there's a whole range of other things as well that didn't exist in the past. And, and it is something that, you know, I, I potentially found it myself during the pandemic. You spent so much more time on a screen that, that even, yeah, you, you maybe felt your focus dissipate a little bit over, over the period of time. Yes, and so something that we know is so important for our mental health 
is our capacity to maintain concentration. So our attention and concentration are actually quite sensitive to disruption, just like um, sleep can be, but attention and concentration are kind of like the main things to go when people are experiencing any significant mental health difficulties. Well, we've faced the extra challenges from the pandemic itself. And one thing that struck me as a statistic was Hari describing that after the pandemic struck, four times as many people Googled the phrase, how to get your brain to focus. Well, that shows that's a pretty widespread problem. And so no doubt with extra challenges, concerns associated with the pandemic, but then, yes, more screen time. But on top of that, this has been something which has been emerging over a period of time. The extra time people spend on social media, the extra time we spend on screens, that had already been quite disruptive to our attention before the extra stress of COVID. And as you say the massive extra amounts of information we're exposed to in our lives these days. Well, it's so true and and it's it's an interesting one because, yeah, as you say, Dad, certainly I think there was an element at which the pandemic definitely did contribute to that. But even before the pandemic, like, it's something that I find and and I think there's other people who find it too, that, for example, when you go on holidays, you might bring a book with you and it takes you almost a day or two to be able to really sit there and consume the book as thoroughly as you'd like to because... Even as you're reading the book, your mind starts to wander a little bit more than you'd kind of like it to. And, and something like that, you know, maybe it does take sort of a couple of sessions of sitting down and reading before you can really consume it for, you know, sort of hours at a time without your mind wandering too far. Actually, this is one of the background themes, some of the benefits of reading a book or doing anything for that matter which involves sustained attention, practising having our focus on one thing or what we might call monotasking because we know that multitasking, we might kid ourselves that I can do three or four things at once but there's all sorts of evidence that that's nowhere near as efficient or as effective as focusing on one thing and reading a book by definition is kind of like that one thing. It's like a form of meditation focusing on one thing. There's that linear processing of information, whereas if we're looking at a screen, plus we've got a phone in our pocket and maybe something else distracting us, we might be shifting our attention in different ways and even the information we're looking to read, we might be skimming, we might be scanning. It's not the same as that linear kind of focus and that can actually degrade our habit of focusing on one thing. Well, it's so interesting and like I must admit, Dad, it's not something I'd ever considered, I suppose, at at the fundamental level before having a bit of a look at this this week. But, you know, one thing I came across, and you know more about this than me, but, you know, of course, neurons in the brain, like they're living cells and they've got their own metabolism. And so you think, you know, they of course need oxygen, but I think it's glucose is uh, is the chemical that they run off. So you think if we have a big meal, sort of thing and that's going to you know give fuel to our neurons for a particular amount of time well every you know status update on facebook or every tweet or every billboard or every ad or every bit of stimuli or you know there's so much around that is going to be competing for the energy of those neurons in some way and and so of course they're going to be depleted after a little while and that's where like you know you talk about this like non-linear or linear sort of mode of taking communication that's not something i'd sort of heard before But I think that thing of like, well, if you've got a book, it's kind of, you know, the words that are on the page and and your imagination and, you know, you're almost in a little bubble with it. Whereas, yeah, if you're on your your phone, there's, 
you know, say at the news feed, and then off to the side of the news feed, there's more information, and you might be getting notifications from another app. And there's just so many things that are almost bombarding you with information that you can think that you're reading something, but it's not the same as a book where it's, you know, it's there's no kind of extra stimulus in ter- extra stimuli in terms of whether it be ads on the page or you know little videos that start up as you scroll halfway down the screen I think it is a it's an interesting point that uh, there's so much set up with digital media to I suppose invade your attention like that yeah so just like you're saying anything that grabs our attention the ads the videos the scrolling anything that's getting our attention it does take some level of energy which depletes us because we only have a certain amount of energy store, if you like. And another way of putting it also is our willpower is a finite resource. So these things that we're paying attention to in the moment or how we spend our time over the next half an hour or even over the next few minutes, if we're paying attention to this and then that and our attention is fragmented in that way, then that's taking away energy from something else. So the broader picture we're looking at here in some ways fits in with those broader principles of positive psychology. Looking at our lives and what gives us a sense of purpose and meaning. How do we want to be engaged in things that gives us that positive affect, that joy, that uplift if you like, and the benefit that comes from learning, also spending time in our relationships. Those things that we know that are worthwhile, that give us a sense of purpose and meaning are going to take some kind of attention to pursue. And so that's where in the recent podcast when we were talking about flow, that engagement in things and creativity, some of how we get out the best in ourselves, so to speak, these kind of broader issues, when it comes to a crunch, filter down to the theme of how we're spending our attention on an hourly and a daily basis. So we don't have to get too hung up on Every five minutes, we've got to be using our attention as efficiently as we can. But if we're repeatedly dissipating our energy in a kind of wasteful way, not because we've planned to turn our attention that way, but because our attention is being hijacked or disrupted, then that can leave us feeling depleted and not just less efficient, but experiencing less enjoyment in life. Well, that's so, it's so true, Dad, and it's so interesting to hear you say that. And, and it must admit, like, it's something that I've been quite reflective on this week going over this podcast material because like, I really found during the pandemic that, you know, obviously had a fair bit of time by myself. Dad is someone living by myself. But like, what I find, I didn't necessarily do it deliberately, but I always had something on. I always had a podcast or the radio on. And, and what I found at the end of the pandemic, like we even had some conversations, like I was just saying like, I just need to get out of Melbourne. Like I just need to get out of Melbourne and have some time, whether it be you know, playing golf somewhere, some time away in nature. Uh, I just felt that there was, there was an element to which being in Melbourne, it was, it was quite oppressive. And what I, I've come to realise in some ways is that I think it had a lot to do with the way that I was living at that time in terms of not giving myself enough time to, to think and consider things and, and even just be in silence. And I look back at that time and it was, you know, it was mainly the walk in the morning where I'd sort of get that time to kind of, you know, have silence and, and really just process things to, a, to an extra degree. 
And I suppose what it made me realise is that I think even before the pandemic, I was doing that to a lesser degree. And even now, you know, I'll listen to a, a podcast on the way home and won't necessarily stop it. As soon as you get home, you can cook dinner and listen to a podcast sort of thing. But, you know, I'm someone who, who often has external stimulus kind of going just because I, like, I enjoy it sort of thing. And it's, yeah, like I enjoy listening to podcasts, all this sort of stuff. But I suppose during, yeah, during that time, during the pandemic where just naturally, organically, there was kind of so much more of that where I was kind of distracting myself in a way. It was, you know, I probably didn't want to really process things to the degree that, uh, that I do now because, well, oh, geez, how do, you, how do you do that in the middle of a pandemic sort of thing? But I just find it so interesting looking back now because, you know, now I think to myself like, ah, oh, geez, like I've got to, you know, for example, have an hour of just nothing on where, you know, it's, it's allotted thinking time sort of thing. It's, it's as if... You know, there's now a, a, a tangible sense of the benefit that that gives. And, and it was just one thing that I, I found during the pandemic that it, it really sort of amplified all that. But I think that, we were, you know, we we're really leading up towards that before the pandemic. And, and I think there's, you know, maybe an element of that since that, yeah, there's, there's just not an, as much, I suppose, organic, reflective, natural thinking time where, where people can just be silent and be by themselves and, it was one thing that I really realised out of the pandemic, so it was interesting to hear you say that. Yes, yeah, so it relates to themes about being conscious about how we use time, exercising choice that way. And I think that for much of the pandemic as well at the early stages and being in lockdown, quite frankly, if people passed the time any which way they could to partly get by, that was like kind of okay. If in a way we were frittering our attention away on different things, but that was passing the time, in some way that's also a bit of a coping strategy for a period of time. But maybe also after a while it encouraged more passive habits of anything that drew our attention. So people would watch a whole Netflix series, that's fine, you've got the time, just watch another one and another one and another one. But there's a certain point at which maybe that's not the best return. So part of what we're looking at here too, it's also how we use our frontal lobes. Our frontal lobes are very much to do with how we willingly or voluntarily direct our attention. And our frontal lobes are sometimes about doing the hard thing when the hard thing is the right thing to do. And that might mean focusing on reading a book if it's more difficult to do that or following through a task or engaging in a two-hour project or something like that. Sometimes it really takes a bit of extra attention to do that. And so building up our focus of being able to focus on one thing, that monotasking we know is a really worthwhile thing, but also, I think you said something else about taking time out. There's something very valuable at times about doing something, some activity, which is not necessarily a, a, a task or a project. It's what Csikszentmihalyi called mental meandering, or Johan Hari calls it mind wandering. There's something wonderful about that also for creativity. We might be in the garden or going for a jog or maybe cooking or something like that, tending to vegetables, whatever you might be doing, something which takes a bit of your attention on something else but leaves some kind of attention in the back of your mind as well. Rather than that just being a passive time, that can be very valuable time, certainly for creativity and flow. People are most effective tend to allow themselves times for that. So the broad theme we're looking at today really is how we can more mindfully direct our attention but we're considering that by looking at well where some of the challenges are to that because there's some objective problems we face in doing that.
Well, very much so, Dad. And I suppose just to get on to another one of those challenges now, and it's something that we'll actually talk, I think, a little bit about next week because we have a guest coming up next week. We have David Cherry coming on the podcast, which is going to be a, a really interesting discussion and, and particularly following on from some of what we're talking about today. And, and I think one of the things that we will talk about with David Cherry is this element of cognitive switching that comes in. And, and you know, we talk about the distractions that can go on and, and you brought up that term monotasking there and it's something we'll expand on a little bit later but you know it's it's one thing we hear a little bit about say for example guys dad blokes is that we can't multitask and and I think that's been kind of proven by science but I don't think anyone's actually very good at kind of properly multitasking in the sense of being able to do actually two things at once. It's almost like we, we seem to switch between one and the other, sort of, yeah, one after the other. It's not as if we're focusing on both. So we can focus on this one for a little while and that one for a little while. And, and there's a cost to that as well, isn't there, Dad? Absolutely. And so, yes, they call it the switch cost effect, as you were describing. Whenever we're focusing on something and then we get distracted, it might be a notification goes off on our mobile phone, there might be a little ping or we might feel a vibrate or something like that, that actually might have more of a cost than we notice at the time because not only do you lose the time that you spend being sidetracked to another task, but if you look to return to the original activity it's going to take a little bit of time to get into the frame of mind that you left at the time. In other words, you were thinking about something, you were focused on something, you were maybe part way in the flow. If you get stopped and distracted, then not only do you have to spend the time on the other thing, but you come back and it might take you a while before you're back to where you were thinking about the original problem. And so that might be 15, 20 minutes rather than just a two-minute distraction. So it's allowing for that. But one of the challenges is, as you were suggesting, in the social media sphere, they actually call it surveillance capitalism. There's a whole technology designed to attract eyeballs to make profits for companies like, for example, Facebook, Twitter and the like. They'll get money from eyeballs and capturing people's attention. So there's a whole behavioural technology going back to the days of Skinner who did experiments with pigeons in Skinner boxes and looked at things like reinforcement and operant conditioning and these behavioural principles, these behavioural principles that can be used for good in terms of changing habits, as we'll talk about with David Cherry next week, those same behavioural principles have been applied in a very sophisticated way at Silicon Valley and other places that design the technology to grab our attention and keep it and keep us, for example, scrolling on a phone, for example. So we need to be aware of those tricks that are used to hijack our attention. Yeah, certainly. And, and we'll have a bit more of a specific chat about social media a little bit later on because I think it's it's almost its, it's whole own thing when talking about this sort of stuff, Dad. But just to highlight your point, like I think it's, it's in some ways fascinating, in other ways so sinister that you know companies like Twitter and Facebook, like they employ the same sort of people that poker machine companies do to come up with things like, I think it's called infinite scroll, where like you, you pull down on your kind of news feed and you get the reward of a whole bunch of new posts and that releases a whole bunch of dopamine in the brain. All this sort of stuff that, that we're competing against. And as you say, like, I, I think it's a big part of you know, cognitive switching. Like we mentioned it before too, that you know, as you're, you're reading something on social media, so often you're actually looking at kind of two or three things at one time. Like it's not as if you know, you're 
in full screen at all times with a video sort of thing. So I think it highlights the degree to which, to which inherently within those technologies and the way that they operate, some of those challenges are, are very much there in terms of the way that they do operate. Yes, it's kind of like the opposite to what we try and do if we try and create a, a workspace where we won't be distracted or an artist's studio, for example. Those settings are designed to be able to keep our focus on one thing. The equipment we have around, the decoration, how it's set up. We're trying to make things work for us to be able to be in that state of flow and maintain our concentration. But anything that gets us to switch our attention, it's going to do a number of predictable things. One thing is it'll obviously make us go slower. Not just for the time distracted, but our time to get back into the mood, so to speak, of what we were doing beforehand. Then we're going to make more mistakes. Also, we'll tend to be less creative because we haven't got that attentional focus that helps for flow. And also, we're going to remember less. So if we've got three or four different sources of information you know, coming in, in a sense, all at once, we're dividing our attention between these things, we're not going to remember the content as well because of that kind of disruption. Well, absolutely. And like, I, I actually find this a little bit, Dad, when I'm watching sport because you know, there's some times when... There's just more than one thing on at once and you just have to have it on two screens. Like, you, you know, it's live sport. I'm not going to watch it on replay. I just need that live, but <laughs> I'm probably a, a little bit of an insider. So you're telling so. me you can monotask, <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, sorry, multitask, so long as it's sport, right? Exactly. Okay. Well, well, no, this is the thing. <laughs> like I was having a conversation with someone the other day that, you know, like I'll, I'll do that to the day I die in terms like it's, it's not something that I'm looking to change and, you know, get a lot out of it. But at the same time, you can have two screens going and, you know, you're kind of there watching both games and then you finish the end of both games and you feel like you've watched neither game. Like, it's not as if you kind of sit there and go, you know, oh, let's, let's really unpick the first quarter of this and then the first quarter of that. And, like, you just don't have the same level of focus that you would have. Now, you can get around that by putting one on mute and, you know, maybe having a little bit further out of your periphery and then if you notice something happening, then you can turn the volume up on that and switch over so that, you know, there's ways around it if you're a diehard like myself, Dad. But I do find it interesting that certainly if it's just there, you've got one screen on over here and then you, you're kind of watching the TV, well, you, you are kind of distracted a little bit by, you know, is something happening at the moment? Is there, you know, am I going to miss a goal? Or, you know, what's the most exciting thing happening at the time? It's not as if you are able to just fully concentrate on one as if it was you know, completely out of your, your attention, which, you know, in my case, unfortunately, it sort of has to be being played at a different time for that to be the case, Dad. Okay, look, actually, what I realise from what you're saying, I've caught myself out a number of times, more consciously recently too, watching a news program, say on TV, but I might also be scrolling through some news items on my phone at the same time. And then sometimes a little bit afterwards, like after five or ten minutes, I'm realising that, it's not that one plus one equals two. One plus one is ending up equaling less than one. In other words, I haven't taken in as much as I would have taken in if I either watched the TV news report or looked at the items on the phone, so to speak. So, so I'm looking to be a little bit more aware of those times of diminishing returns, that notion of monotasking, focusing on one thing. We're going to tend to get more return from that. Absolutely, and and it is like it's, it's a fascinating trend. I think that's developed, Dad. Like you know, you and I sit here and, and talk about how our habits have changed, but you know, it's not as if it's just us. If we look at the the habits of, of for example, screen time in children, 
it's one thing that I sort of have a little bit of a chat about with some friends, Dad, that, you know, I feel like in some ways I and, you know, people around my age are kind of the last generation to grow up majority with the internet. But at the same time, like I think we were, you know, 13 or 14 in our house, Dad, by the time we got the internet. So it's a very different existence if, you know, someone's, I think, plugged into that at, you know, the age of two and three. But if we look at some of the statistics around screen time use, it is a marked shift in terms of the increase that is. And like we look at, for example, in April 2020, the average US adult spent 13 hours a day in front of screens. And, you know, screens weren't really invented 100 years ago. So you think that's such a, like 13 hours a day. That's, that's more than half of our time that we're now spending in front of screens. Yes, and no doubt some of that was necessitated by, for example, Zoom and meetings at work and then people would be watching TV at night. But 13 hours, that's almost like a frightening number, isn't it? And apparently with children, about six times as many children in that same period post-COVID spent six hours or more in front of a screen. And again, some of that would have been school classes and things like that via Zoom. But six hours, that's a lot of time for a child to be in front of a screen, especially when we know the importance of play, for example, for creativity and doing different things and being able to pay attention to different things, being out in nature, those side of things as well. Screen time typically competes with some of these other things that may be more advantageous to people's health and well-being. So it's a matter of getting it in balance, but that sounds like that's been quite out of balance. Well, you talk about screen time competing, Dad. Like, I saw an incredible quote from the CEO of Netflix. I think his name's Reed Hastings. And he was talking about the fact that for Netflix, so often people watch, you know, movies and TV shows late at night. And so they were talking about one of their biggest competitors being sleep. So, you know, their, their business model is literally based around depriving people of sleep in order to get more money. So, you know, it's a long way that we've come, I suppose, down the road of obviously like surveillance capitalism, that's one thing. But, you know, if we look at, yeah, companies commodifying our attention and, and distraction, it's, it's all over the place, Dad. Yes, and that's a very concerning thing when you think about it when sleep is so fundamental to our mental health. Like the first thing we can do to improve our mental health is probably engage in more physical exercise. The second thing is probably get more sleep. And they're basically probably equivalent in some ways. And then there's our diet. These kind of things that make a real difference. Now, there's a problem as well. We talk about screens. Advertising is often going to be pushing things like unhealthy diets as well, where you can get the compounding problems. But again, we're coming back to that theme of how we use our time and using it mindfully. And we look at the amount of time people are on screens. Another statistic before the pandemic, 2017, apparently the average American adult was spending about 5.4 hours on the phone. And so again, more screens and scrolling and things like that, and only about 17 minutes reading a book. And people were reporting pleasure from reading a book, for example, had dropped dramatically. And, and most American adults did not read a single book in a year, which is quite different from, again, decades earlier, certainly a majority of people would have read you know, at least one book in a year and probably several. So we're getting this shift in habits which is going to be shifting our habits of brain functioning. And so, yes, it's being aware of that disruptive impact and looking to counter it. 
Well, I must admit, Dad, that puts me at ease a little bit because, <laughs> you know, Sunday mornings when you get that that screen time notification or whatever, sometimes you look at it and you, oh, it's disgusting in some ways, but I'm not quite at the 5.4 hours yet. So uh, it's good to know that I'm not quite at the average American, but yes, who I knows? Know. I'll tell you what, if uh, the trend of the pandemic continues, I'll be right on my way. Yes, I don't think we want to use that as our optimal benchmark, <laughs> do we? And one thing that we can acknowledge, just like you described, is just say with phones, they do give you some scope, for example, to turn off notifications. We can do that, which will help diminish this switch cost effect, if you like. But also we can monitor our screen time, just like you said. We can pay attention to that. So I wouldn't go along with some people at Silicon Valley who say, oh, we've got this problem sorted because you can switch off notifications, problem solved, and, hey, you can monitor your screen time or even, if you like, set your phone so you can't access the internet between certain hours or things like that. Yes, well, those things are potential tools, but let's face it, they're not going to really be dealing with this broader problem that we're talking about here that's going to take a level of planning to limit it, let alone, if you like, completely counter the negative effects. Well, I think that's such an important point, Dad, and, and we will, again talk about this a little bit later on when we talk about some of the things that we can do to mitigate against some of this sort of stuff but I think that point you know something as simple as turning off notifications or even thinking about what actually you know what am I getting out of this like like one thing that I've found since for example the pandemic and and recognizing some of this sort of stuff recognizing that the trajectory I was heading in wasn't necessarily where I wanted to be going with uh with my use of screens and this sort of stuff but it just kind of made you realise, well, actually, like, you know, like, why? Like, obviously, the default setting is kind of a certain way, but I think the more intentional that you can be about, you know, exactly why you want to do it, you know, why am I on social media? There's a range of valid reasons, but I think if you can really drill down into those reasons and then go, well, hold on, you know, maybe I don't need to be getting notified exactly every time this person posts on Twitter. And like that was one I, I did recently, Dad, with uh, everything that was happening in, in the Ukraine, obviously wanting to stay involved. There was a couple of people that I had their notifications on on Twitter, and so I was just getting almost bombarded with this information. And there was a time where that really served a purpose for me, but then I kind of thought, well, hold on, maybe it's uh, maybe it's not the best thing for me right now. Now that I've you know got my head around things a little bit, and and maybe turning off those notifications for now is going to be the best thing. But I think having that conversation with yourself about, well, actually, you know, like why do I, have, you know, why do I have them on, and you know, would it be better to turn them off and you know have my Twitter time or. Uh, yeah, have that time allotted to tune back into some of that sort of stuff. I, I, I really do think that that is a bit more beneficial. Yes, and I think this is a good time actually now, a few months into 2022 to be considering these things, just like when we talked about creativity, we talked about flow and said, well, we're likely to face less restrictions from broad lockdowns now. There might be occasional isolation, things like that. Maybe we can be getting back to, if you like, a little bit more of a routine in terms of school and work activities. Now, this this is the first term that school kids have been back more consistently. Now we can have more of the luxury, if you like, of looking at how we use our attention. It has been so disrupted in recent times. So just like you're saying, being aware of these things and how we're affected by screen time, our phones, what habits we've developed over the last couple of years, whether we can shift them a little bit more, maybe more opportunity for monotasking, flow, creativity, yeah, part of the picture.
is looking at what we can do with our habits of using social media. Well, you, you've led us in beautifully, Dad, because I think it would be worth touching on social media as it's, as its own, you know, I hesitate to use the term beast, but I think it is its own beast a bit, Dad. And, and again, this is something that we'll chat a little bit about with David Cherry next week in terms of maybe installing some good habits and looking at how we can use this information for our own positive benefit. But I think it really is worth recognising I suppose the factors at play in terms of what we are coming up against with some of the technology involved in social media and and we mentioned things like you know infinite scrolling and and things like this but do you want to just give us a, a bit more of a sense dad of exactly how these technologies do work well basically if we look at the mega companies like facebook twitter google youtube they're designed to make profits they're basically commercial companies And they make profits by attracting and sustaining people's attention. So they want to grab eyeballs. They want to, if you like, hijack your attention. They want you to switch from what you're doing to focusing on your screen and stay there. So you mentioned infinite scrolling. They found that if you change the technology and rather than getting to the bottom of the page and having to click on another page, if you could just keep on scrolling indefinitely, you would stay longer looking at the screen. Hence, more advertising profits. But it can get a little bit more sinister, unfortunately, because what do people particularly pay attention to? Well, these companies aren't concerned about morals or any particular value, like whether something might be good to look at or not so good to look at. They're just concerned about profits. So what will gain and then sustain our attention? Unfortunately, what grabs our attention more than anything else is something around negativity or conflict or threat. And this is to do with the negativity bias. So we know through evolution what will get people's attention the most. It's things related to threat or danger. Now, newspapers have long known this. They know that bad news sells. You have a headline about war or conflict in some way. You'll get a lot of eyeballs. Uh, Will Smith hits Chris Rock. That'll be the biggest topic around the world for a while even trumping other kind of things that are happening at the time. So it's all about what grabs our attention. And unfortunately, negativity will tend to grab our attention. Now, as an example, hostile tweets will get more attention. For example, negative tweets apparently get 20% more retweets. They use a term, if it's enraging, it's engaging. Now, some of the specific ways that shows up too is if people use specific words like bad or attack or blame, apparently they get more retweets than any other words. So it's shifting our attention in that kind of direction. So if people express intense disagreement, conflict, negativity in whatever way, that's the thing that is going to sustain people's attention more. Well, without realising it, we're kind of being manipulated into this kind of further negative, angry bias. And I think that's going to be, in some ways, degrading the social discourse. If it's selectively attending, if you like, or paying more attention to these negative kind of things, well, if people want more likes or retweets or get more attention or feel they're having more impact, they'll be driven more to this negative way of expressing themselves, more anger, more hostility. I think that's most unfortunate. 
Absolutely. I think it's a oh, very unfortunate. I think we've seen some political implications because of this sort of stuff. And we might even have a little bit of a chat more about that in a sec, Dad. But I just wanted to pick up on a, on a couple of your points. Uh, and firstly, about um, talking about how basically social media companies get paid for having eyeballs. And like even this sort of stuff, I think, is you know pretty sinister how far we've come with, for example, data and all this sort of stuff. And like as you mentioned, like of course, they get advertisers' money. But at the same time, the longer you spend on their websites, they learn more about you. And so therefore, they can more accurately predict your behavior to then further leverage that to then sort of gain money from advertisers and all this sort of stuff. So like, you know, you hear it every so often where people say, oh, Facebook must be listening to me because, you know, I was talking about a holiday to Japan and then all of a sudden these advertisements for a holiday to Japan came down the, down the side of my Facebook. And like the answer to that is actually in some ways a little bit, I think, more sinister than if there was an artificial intelligence robot listening to you. And that's that they can actually predict your behavior so well down to the point where they're going to know algorithmically that, you know, roughly coming up, you're going to want a holiday. You've been looking at a lot of stuff about maybe Japan. And so all this kind of, I suppose, yeah, stuff comes together to be able to produce this result, which is a person who wants to go on a trip to Japan. And they're able to target that so specifically. So like to me, it just suggests like, as you say, the the moral compass is maybe not quite there in terms of, oh, I don't know if that's maybe the the, the greatest good collectively for, for things like that to be going on. But at the same time, it, it really is already implemented. You know, this stuff's been going on for years now. And and oh, again, like I, I found it very interesting what you were saying about sort of everyone getting uh, sucked into to threat and danger on social media because I believe it's the limbic system is the system in the body that basically looks out for that sort of stuff. And again, so there's people who engineer social media, basically looking at ways to stimulate the limbic system. Yes, it's getting that fight and flight reaction going, isn't it? And so there's a level at which we're being manipulated. And it's one thing to say, well, maybe before we were being manipulated a bit as well by newspaper headlines because, again, a negative headline will grab our attention and that's known by the editors, so there's that bias. But it's a bit different, again, if, as you say, there are thousands of bits of information, if you like, or more, that the social media companies will have about our preferences or what we're responding to to be able to, if you like, predict what kind of messages or ads will respond to, it's recognising there is that manipulation there. But an even more, well, dare I say, sinister form of manipulation again is that apparently on Facebook it's been shown from an MIT study that fake news travels about six times faster than real news. So false stories on Facebook will typically get more attention than the top mainstream news stories. That's really concerning. Like if there are really good journalists checking their facts, looking at the main kind of stories and conveying some kind of important issue, that is going to tend to be trumped by someone telling a false story. And when you think about that, how that would reward politicians who are prepared to cross that line, not be concerned about what is true or fake news, so to speak, not be concerned about the level of manipulation of other people or distortion of information. Basically, if you get someone with any psychopathic tendencies, it's going to reward them for that. And so basically, Twitter rewards 
hate speech. Facebook elevates fake news. Well, this is part of our diet of receiving information these days and how do we sift between what is most accurate and what is most not? Because I think we'd consider that many people are perhaps being led astray if we consider that with extremist groups, apparently about two-thirds of people who join an extremist group found that group through a Facebook recommendation. Well, that's shaping the social structure a bit. And so it's not just going to be a matter of, well, other people are influenced, but I'm not. Like, oh, other people are influenced by advertising, but I'm not. Or other people might be influenced by social media posts, but I'm not. Well, we all are, because it's based on the kind of, well, algorithms that we respond to. The information is being shaped to us to look to get us to act a certain way and particularly spend more time on the screen. Very true, Dad. And and like it really highlighted to me, I suppose to, to touch on another thing that we were talking about before, like like on Twitter, for example, you've got basically, a, I don't even know what you'd call it, maybe like a new post tab that you'll be halfway down your news feed and it says, you know, new posts, click here to see all the new ones that you've missed out on in the last couple of minutes or whatever. And and like it, it really struck me one time because I'd gotten home from work and so I'm literally scrolling through Twitter. I hadn't seen anything all day. And then that post comes up, you know, after about, say, five minutes or so, you're scrolling through and I clicked it and I sort of went, hold on, like, sort of thought not, nothing of it. But then I really, like, considered it again and I was like, hold on, that it is in no way beneficial for me to click that post. Like, at this stage, all of the posts are new and if I go right up to the top again, there's going to be a point in a little bit of time where I go through all the posts that I've just scrolled through. So like in no like logically there was it made no sense to do that, but it was just this habit or this involuntary reaction in some ways. And so I was like, like I looked back and I was like, hold on, like my logical sort of side of the brain could process that and go, well, like, why would you do that? At the same time, you just find yourself falling into some of these behaviours. And, and I think that's where what, what you mentioned before about, you know, not looking at it in terms of, well, you know, advertisers don't sort of, you know, affect me and all this sort of stuff. It's like, well, like, look at some of the, you know, things that they are employing and how that, you know, does affect all of us. And I think if we have a bit of an awareness of that and some of the strategies that are trying to be implemented and, and some of the, I suppose, competing imperatives that competing for our attention at all times, if we have a bit of a sense of that, well, then, you know, we might even find ourselves acting upon it at times, but we can almost reflect on it afterwards and go, hold on, that wasn't necessarily me you know, in, in full charge of my facilities, making that decision, it actually was something that I was manipulated to do in a way. Yes, getting back to what you were saying earlier on too, it's about the sheer amount of information we're exposed to as well, isn't it? So another statistic that Hari mentioned is that if you go back a few years earlier, then on Twitter, the top stories would be there for about 17 to 18 hours. A few years later... Only about 12 hours is the top 50 stories. So in other words, there's more and more information being pumped out all the time. Like you were saying before, do we really need to see that information? Especially when it's not always going to necessarily be the most relevant to what our interests are at the time. It mightn't even be accurate. So it's being aware of that ongoing attempt to hijack our attention which is a finite resource, our willpower, our time, our energy kind of thing, 
So being aware of how much pull there is for that. Well, it's so true, Dad, and, and you know, there's two things that I, I want to say about that. And the first thing is, you know, like I think it's important to note here, like there is so much pull with some of this sort of stuff. And, and so that's why I think it's, it's very important to have empathy for people in this situation in terms of, you know, to a different degree at different times, we're all going to, I suppose, fall prey to some of this stuff in some ways. And so it's, oh, I don't think, worth being judgmental in any way towards someone who is influenced by some of these factors because as you say they are very powerful and you know one thing that I heard which resonated with me was you can have all the willpower you want but you're still coming up against 10,000 engineers in Silicon Valley whose job it is to essentially make you behave in a different way and so I think that's very important but the other thing that I will just mention is that I think as you said before like we're starting to see some political implications of all this stuff in terms of obviously there's people trying to to do this for for a business sense there's people trying to make money from it but you know potentially around the world there's some politicians now who are starting to recognize this a little bit and are starting to maybe play off that idea of of negativity you know spreading faster and and people's limbic system you know firing up at the thought of of all this sort of stuff and i think even with our, our political discourse it, it, you know, we talk about it being divided and we talk about, yeah, the divide, all this sort of stuff that exists. Well, I think part of it is because of this reason is because that everyone's almost playing into this kind of us and them, you know, let's have conflict about this. Like, you know, no one's making money off a civil discussion. <laughs> and I think it is worth recognising that because, you know, there, there are some things I think starting to play out, maybe some sinister forces at play. And, and I think maybe some of these social media companies have contributed to that. Yes, and the more outrageous and negative comments, again, can hold more sway and get more attention. I think we've certainly seen that with Trump exploiting Twitter right throughout his presidency. But another classic example was Bolsonaro in Brazil. I thought this was a frightening story again. Apparently, Bolsonaro was not the favourite to win that relatively recent election in Brazil. But what happened is he came up with a very clever ploy to discredit his main opponent. And he said basically his opponent had this conspiracy, this big plan to turn Brazilian children, infants, gay. And this sounds pretty weird. How would someone do that? Well, he said that his opponent was going to deliver milk bottles to every kindergarten in Brazil and the teats of the milk bottles would be painted as a penis. So it's going to turn all the children gay. I don't know how this works for all genders or whatever, but turn all the children gay using these milk bottles. Well, Bolsonaro won, and apparently after he wins, his supporters are chanting, Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. Now that's frightening. Absolutely, that's frightening, and... And, oh, geez, uh, we could be going down a bit of a different road here, Dad, but I think, like, it highlights the importance of, of recognising some of this sort of stuff and, and recognising how these, you know, technologies can be used. Like, I do want to stress as well, we'll talk next week about how they can be used in, in positive ways. We did definitely want to, uh, I suppose, identify the problem before we start talking about some solutions. But, like, you even see it, you know, in, 
Ukraine and Russia at the moment, Dad, with some of the stuff going on there, you know, obviously, like, warfare has changed so much. Like, I think we've seen one thing recently where, you know, a Russian commander is taking all these photos saying he's in the front lines of Ukraine and kind of forgot to crop out a petrol station in the background, which only exists in Russia. So it's clearly in Russia, but at the same time, like, this... You know, like they're, they're having their effect in terms of these posts on social media and all this sort of stuff. So I suppose the, the point that I want to highlight there is that, you know, this is important stuff in a way. And I think there is the degree to which it's it's beneficial for our individual mental health. And, and it's not to, to trivialise that in any way because it very much is. But at the same time, I think we should be looking at some of this sort of stuff and going, well hold on, we're, we're at a bit of a crossroads in some ways and, you know, either we can learn a little bit more about it or we can just continue on the trajectory that we're on and, and potentially allow some people and companies to have a, a great influence over our not only mental health but state of society as a whole. Yes, so again, a lot of it is about how we exercise choice and being aware of this while we've been up against it with the pandemic for a couple of years, fortunately gradually emerging beyond the worst impacts of that, hopefully. And then what we're talking about, the challenge from social media, the challenge to our attention. But again, I suppose what that means is it's worth considering the other kind of things that can assist our attention. So, and I think... Hari outlined some of those main other things very well. He talked about looking out for stress because we know that any form of distress is likely to compromise our attention and our concentration. So having good ways of dealing with stress helps and that of course includes exercise, it includes getting good sleep. And sleep in itself, having a good amount of sleep, hopefully for not watching too many Netflix shows, especially just before bed, best to have no screens on for a couple of hours before bed. But good sleep in itself helps our energy levels, our mood, and certainly our concentration, our attention, as we'd know from personal experience. Then our diet makes a big difference, and especially watching out, for example, for foods or drinks with high sugar. The high sugar, there'll be that spike that people get soon afterwards, but then afterwards there'll be the opposite kind of effect. We'll tend to feel lower levels of energy and so we'll get that rebound effect, unfortunately, if we overly elevate our sugar levels kind of thing. So watching out for our diet, you know, things like nuts, for example, are far better for that sustained kind of energy level rather than such a spike. And then also engaging in play having that unstructured time for play which we know for children's very good for their creativity and their imagination and social connection their joy it helps for adaptability and so if children are spending too much time on screens or social media they're missing out on some of those benefits of play very much so dad and you know, I'll tell you what, I'm not yet in my old age, but it is often something that, you know, me and mates talk about in terms of, you know, when we were kids, you know, we're playing outside and playing ball games and all this sort of stuff. And, yeah, I think I'll maybe overdo it a little bit at some times, Dad. But one uh, stat that I think relates to that that I found so interesting, and I think it's actually it's, it's a great stat for, for the symbology of a lot of this sort of stuff too because, you know, I think McDonald's, uh, whilst it's not a social media, has maybe been you know, maybe similarly representative of some of the sort of negative outcomes of capitalism, let's just say, and all this sort of stuff. I heard a stat where apparently the last six AFL Brownlow medalists grew up in a town without a McDonald's. 
So wow. clearly they must have had a lot more time outside playing. And, you know, you think of uh, Lockie Neal. I think he grew up in, ah, oh, it's slipped my mind now, border of South Australia and Victoria. You've got Lake Grace, Nat Fife. Oh, they've slipped my mind. Uh, Paddy Dangerfield was Mogs Creek. So I, I suppose it, it speaks to this in terms of, you know, there wouldn't have been too many distractions back in the day. There was no McDonald's instead of uh, mulling around the mall where we used to in Geelong or, or yeah, obviously at, at the Maccas, they were out playing footy. That's a very interesting observation, that one. That's remarkable. It's got notions also of spending time out in nature and more free and, again, the monotasking and developing skills, often sport being so important in regional areas where there's not the other distractions maybe, so to speak. But that, that's a very interesting observation, that one. Well, and Dad, I suppose just to touch on some more of the strategies in terms of like what we can do with some of this sort of stuff, I think that is where, you know, the previous couple of episodes that we've done on, on flow and creativity, I think, you know, we, we can chat about some stuff to do from moment to moment. Obviously, you can do stuff like turn off your notifications, which we've spoken about, you know, limiting your time on screens, all this sort of stuff. But I think there is an element to which, you know, you, you've got to look at it a little bit broader in terms of it's not just about, you know, distracting yourself from distraction, if that makes sense. Like, if you can find that sort of broader reason for being, for lack of a better term, that broader unifying purpose, well, some of this sort of stuff isn't going to have such an effect. And that's one of the things I really like about Johan Hari, and, and he's, oh, I must be, I didn't read his book, Dad, but I have heard some, some great podcasts with him and one of the great voices going around. But one of the things I do like about what he says about social media and, you know, obviously talks about the dangers of it, but it's not as if he says we shouldn't use social media and social media should be made illegal and, you know, it's, he's not advocating complete prohibition in that sense. He's looking at it in terms of, well, what are the isolated things about social media that are the issue in this situation? It's as if we're just going to, you know, paint it with a, a big black brush and just go, nah, throw the whole lot out. He actually goes, well, if we reflect on, on why we use social media, what we get out of social media, is social media contributing towards my broader unifying purpose that I, that I want to achieve in the medium to long term, well, then we can actually, we've got a few benchmarks to put this sort of stuff up against rather than, you know, I'm, I'm spending my time like this and, you know, I, it was a great way to spend the last 45 minutes or whatever. It's like, yeah, like it, you know, it might have been, like you can kill hours on TikTok, but at the same time, it's not necessarily going to propel you towards, towards your goals and towards doing the things that you, that you really want to do at a deeper level. Yes, a lot of it's about that consciousness and awareness, isn't it? And yes, you're quite right. It's important not to be black and white about this. Even if we look at screens, what better way was there of staying in touch with our loved ones, even if they were in the next suburb, than via, for example, Zoom? You know, phone calls, Zoom. We really relied on social media and screens also to be able to work, many of us, to see colleagues in meetings, to plan things, to get work done. So actually that was a remarkable benefit of that technology that we had and people would have really known how much of an advantage that was if they didn't have the internet. Like imagine all the things we couldn't have done the last two years if we didn't have the internet. So yes, we need to acknowledge the positive sides of that. But again, it's about being mindful. And so I suppose it starts off being aware that we're being manipulated. 
This is how the apps are engineered, for example. So if we notice ads and all the rest of it, just recognising, well, what kind of slant do these kind of things have? That's what we're found to respond to. Do we want to spend as much time responding to that as we have been? Maybe there are ways of just allowing a couple of times a day we'll access it, for example. Or we might think, look, I'll spend half an hour on this rather than just randomly, infinitely scrolling. Even screens with TV in the evening. It does help to be a bit planful and switch off the screen, especially two hours before bedtime, or at least containing it in some way, having less of that exposure to blue light. We know that makes a difference to sleep. So it's just being aware of things like that, and particularly as we talked about those recent episodes, anything that helps us have the experience of flow, anything that helps us develop further our creativity and our creative action, that's where we're using our frontal lobes. That's where we've got our sustained attention on things that we like doing and or we're good at. That's how we tend to experience flow. So it's differentially setting aside time for those things and guarding some of that time. For example, having work settings or study settings or if an artist, you know, clearly you'd have a studio set up a certain way. Look to make our workspaces conducive to be able to keep on paying attention to something. That also might include scheduling in breaks. We need to have breaks as well. We can't pay attention for three hours straight at the same kind of level. We'll probably go better if we build in some breaks. And also through the day, if we include maybe a couple of breaks for mind-wandering, mental meandering. It might be a jog time in the garden, cooking, different things. And realise the benefit that we sometimes have from having those diversions that are worthwhile in themselves, but where we have a break from focusing very directly on a problem because that actually can help our intuition, our broader ways of thinking about things. Yes, yeah, so it's doing these things with awareness. Very much so. And, and oh, look, I, I just find it absolutely fascinating to look into all this sort of stuff, Dad. And, and you mentioned B.F. Skinner earlier on and might have a little bit of a brief chat about him in, in just a moment. But I think some of the thing with, with talking about some of this sort of stuff today is, is when you recognise where it came from. You know, people like B.F. Skinner. Uh, the other one is, is Edward Bernays, I believe was his name, who was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. Uh, and he came up with this concept called the psychology of engineered consent. So his whole thing is known as the father of public relations. Another fascinating person, but also someone who is hugely influential in terms of the way that people get manipulated for profit. And so I might put up a link or two, if you're really interested in this sort of stuff, I'll put up something about Benet's and, and, and Skinner as well. But I did just want to bring up Skinner, Dad, because we mentioned that we're talking to David Cherry next week and very, very much looking forward to that. I've had the pleasure of seeing David present on, on the topic that we're going to be talking to him about. And he is an incredible presenter with, with some great information that will be great to bring to you all. But, but David, uh, I suppose, builds upon the work of B.F. Skinner, Dad. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about Skinner? Because you mentioned him today and, and his work is central to what we've been talking about. And, and it is very interesting to touch on, on yeah, some elements of his life. Certainly, at least indirectly, David would be referring to principles from Skinner because Skinner was a psychologist early in the 20th century who said that we'd make more advances if we looked scientifically on the surface of people's behaviour. 
what led people to do more of something or less of something? What would influence their behaviour? And so he did experiments with pigeons, for example, in Skinner boxes where they would be given a pellet if they, for example, started to turn clockwise rather than anti-clockwise. And after a while he felt that by reinforcing or rewarding certain kind of behaviours, he could get these pigeons to do quite elaborate dances using the principle of operant conditioning. He'd also consider classical conditioning. So, for example, if you get Pavlov's dog, which would salivate at the sound of a bell, these are things that are about basic human functioning and habits. And things like reinforcement or reward or punishment, classical conditioning... These are things that we know have an enormous impact on our behaviour, but it tends to occur at an unconscious level. And so, whereas Skinner was looking at these kind of experiments and looking at developing this technology to help communities, if you like, he still wanted to help people. He wrote a book called Beyond Freedom and Dignity, saying, don't try and get too caught up in people's attitudes or thoughts or personalities will go better if we focus just on people's behaviour. Now he had a certain point but he probably took it too far because in modern psychology we also know it's important to consider things like purpose and meaning rather than to consider a person as just a set of behaviours like a black box. We don't have to look at what's inside. What's inside people is some of what's the most interesting. But by the same token if we look at behaviour in itself There are principles that can help us change habits. Little habits, big habits influence our behaviour, even the way we use social media, how we engage in exercise, how we manage our diet. There are different principles that we can use to increase certain behaviours, decrease certain behaviours and change habits. And so that's where looking at that kind of technology for benefit, something that David will be talking about, rather than using those principles for manipulating people, as we've talked about, as as social media engineers can do, we're looking at that personal positive benefit of using those principles. Well, that is something I'm very much looking forward to chatting with David. I know you you and David have a a regular little chat, Dad, and and you always come back with a, a wealth of knowledge and there's always, yeah, one or two little things that you've picked up that are that I'm hoping that we can all all gain some of David's wisdom next week. So very much looking forward to uh to taking a more positive slant on things as well because it's funny, Dad, you know, working in podcasts and all this sort of stuff to some degree, like I'm guilty myself, you know, if you if you're listening to this podcast, you know. First of all, thank you. <laughs> but the second time, you know, you've you've given us, you know, your attention for the for the length of this podcast, and and so I find it a, a fascinating area to to play in and to learn about, and and you know, I think it does go back to that point that the more that we can learn about this stuff, the more that we can reflect on it, well, then the more that we can actually control it, and I suppose engineer the benefits that can come from it, rather than just be manipulated by other people's imperatives all the time. Yes, look forward to next week. I suspect all of us have one or two habits that could do with a bit of a tweak. Very much so. And of course, we'll put all the resources for today up on the episode page, which you can get at sykespeels.com.au. And thanks so much for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. It's good to have you back in the outside world again. Good then, Rowan. See you next week.